pray. Almighty God, we commend this offering into your hands, knowing it's an offering that you will use indeed to bring people to Jesus. For that's what we so want. All will come to know him. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. pray together. Almighty God, we are so grateful for your love and your grace and for the privilege of coming together to worship, to study your word, to be the church. And now as I stand before these, your people, your church, I pray that this would be your message and not my own. Through the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I'm throwing out the sermon. That's why the screen went dark. So you can... That scripture in Exodus is wonderful. I encourage you to read it. (laughs) But God and I have been having an argument. And so I just wanted to kind of share that with you. And we've been debating for actually quite some time now. I don't know if you get in arguments with God. Sometimes I get in an argument with God, and typically, as today, I lost. You know, we we were debating a lot over the last few days, debating a lot last night up till about midnight, and we picked it back up at 4.30 this morning. But then God has this uncanny trump card that he plays, because after we've debated for a while, he'll go, but hey, I'm God. And it's like, yes, you are. Yes, you are. It's okay. We have been talking over the, among the clergy. We had a, some planning time where we've been looking at the series for, you know, throughout the year, but in particular during the season of Lent. And the series during the season of Lent is going to be Get Real. So starting next Sunday is Getting Real as we get to the cross. I mean, being authentic and real and genuine. Get Real. And so, you know, God was kind of like, maybe you should do that tomorrow. It's like, I don't want to do that tomorrow. But God won. So I'm going to take a risk. Um, I want to talk to you as a pastor to his people. A pastor to the congregation. Um, Four times the charm. Um, being a pastor is not the easiest thing in the world to do and to be I mean we want to please God with all of our heart we want to be faithful to God we want to be faithful to the church and we want everybody to love us and that just isn't going to happen 
One way that we could try to pull it off, I guess, is to only preach you the sweet stuff. We just did the sweet stuff, and it works. I mean, there's, there's some pastors who do that now. They, they can fill up a coliseum. I've seen it done. But I think if we only talk about the easy and the sweet stuff, that's kind of like a parent who just wants to be their child's best friend instead of being the parent. And what you end up with is dysfunction and chaos. So I'm called to be a pastor. I, I have this stole here because when you're ordained in the Methodist Church, in the United Methodist Church, you're given one of these. You kneel down before the bishop after you've gone before the Board of Ordained Ministry, and you, um, you, the bishop lays hands upon you, maybe a couple of bishops, tells you to take thine authority to preach the gospel, to teach the faith, and you stand up. When you do... They place one of these around your neck. Ed's is going across the side, as you see, because he's a deacon. That's a deacon stole. Mine hangs straight down because I'm an elder. It's an elder stole. But this is the one that I was presented. The stole is symbolic of the authority of God. That's what it means. Sometimes you might even see if a priest comes in to do last rites or something, they will pull a little stole out of their pocket and place it around their neck because it says that what I'm doing now is under the authority of God. And so I, I brought this before me because it just kind of reminds me that if you get to wear one of these or you have reverend in front of your name, to be faithful means sometimes you have to do your job. And so this is one of those times. You know, I, I was debating, there, there's an elephant in the room, so I decided we would name it. The United Methodist Church has been all over the news in the last week. Most of you have seen it. If you have it, you're now Googling it. But I, my plan was to get together, you know, and, and, and share, here's a statement uh, about what occurred at our general conference, have a prayer, and then we were going to hang out with Moses for a while. But God and I got into an argument. And it just felt like we needed to have some honest, real, genuine conversation as a pastor to the congregation. One of the things I love about the United Methodist Church is that we're a global church. I've shared that with you before. I love the fact that we're not just a U.S. or Western-based church. It brings such diversity, it brings such insight, it brings such cultural awareness, it helps us to understand how the gospel goes across the world. It's exciting to, to be a part of it, but I want you to understand something about the United Methodist Church. And that is that the United States, the Methodist Church in the United States, only makes up about 58.3% of the United Methodist Church. A lot of people don't understand that. We, we tend to think, well, we're primarily a U.S.-based church and, and then we do some mission work in the rest of the world. That's not the case. We're 58, roughly 0.3%, and the continent of Africa makes up then about another 30% of the Methodist church. Europe makes up roughly almost 5%. The Philippines, almost 6%. And, and, and so it's interesting, too, that the Philippines and 
Africa, those are the regions that are really growing. Those are the regions that are growing for Christ. And so the global church, the United Methodist Church, from across the world, 864 delegates representing the church worldwide, met this past week to discuss the issue of human sexuality, in particular homosexuality. It's a controversial subject. There is a lot of passion on all sides. And if we're honest, most all of our families have someone who's wrestling with it. We do. I assume you do as well. Or we have family, we have friends, we have others that we love dearly. So the challenging thing is, is then how do the faithful people of God get together to discern God's will? That becomes what we wrestle with. Questions like, how do we interpret scripture? What is this book really all about? Does this Bible have any authority in our lives today? Or as N.T. Wright, the English scholar, asked, what is the authority of God in our lives as revealed through the scripture? And, and how do we make decisions? I mean, what are, what are the decisions that are ours to make and what are the decisions that are not ours to make? I, I think sometimes when the church gathers together to make a decision that God's going, how did that become your job? And, and then we try to wrestle with what is, what is God's decision to make? What is ours? And, and if it's ours to make, then what, what are those decisions? And, and we try to discern what is cultural, what, what, was, what is, you know, about, well, in those days at that time and that place, but now in this day and this time and this place, and things are different. So are there some cultural things that, that you look at? And, and then the other question is, is, but what are some of the universal things that God has said that will be true in all places at all times for all people? And so we try to wrestle, we try to discern. Church has been wrestling, trying to discern. I mean, some things seem to come pretty naturally to us. I mean, generally, the church is pretty consistent that thou shalt not murder. There are very few conferences that I know of that's ever been held where we go, well, let's, let's rethink that. I've got this neighbor. <laughs> we, we tend to know this is pretty universal. A teacher was telling me one day that in a class they were studying some literary work and they were having a class discussion about what they had read. And one of the children spoke up and said, yeah, but that was back when adultery was a sin. How do we decide today? I mean, what do we believe? How do we get to where we are? Is this a guide? Is it God's word? What is this? And and we have to discern as well when we study this scripture. I mean, do we sometimes go, this is what I believe or this is what I want to believe. And therefore, I'm going to get in here and find some verses to back up what I already believe. We sometimes do that. It's called eisegesis. Or do we read this book sometimes and go, there are some things in here that I love and there are some parts in here that I don't, but I have to submit myself to it. For example, that whole part about if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves every day and follow me, that's not my favorite part. 
So how do I work through it? When Paul was writing to his apprentice, his young apprentice, Timothy, a young pastor that he dearly loved, Paul says to him in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Some versions put it, study to show yourself approved unto God. So I study this book, study it hard. I encourage you to study it hard. I teach it. I've taught from the beginning of my ministry, not only on Sunday mornings and worship, but I, I've tried to lead Bible studies and teach because I just, there's something in this book. And then we have to discern what is God's will in this book. We, we, we tend to live in a culture that's based on I think, I feel, I believe, I. And sometimes it's hard to, to try to read the scripture and discern what is your will. What is the will of God? Who is God calling us to be? What does that look like? To hear a word from God is sometimes challenging. So then Paul goes on to his apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and he says, So all scripture is inspired by God, and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped in every good work. I love the way the New International Version actually starts that scripture when it says, All scripture is God-breathed. It's not just another book. It's not like, you know, what's some of your favorite books? I love Grisham, love the Bible. It's just kind of one of them. There's something different about this one. So we try to discern and, and we get divided on how we interpret it. And we have to be honest about that. I mean, if we were not divided on how we interpret it, there wouldn't be so many churches in the Weddington community. But the fact that we have different denominations around and we have different churches around means that there have been times where we go, yeah, but I think the scripture says this or yeah, but I think the scripture says that. And, and so we have a tendency to be divided. And one of the things I love to hear is when, when people will come up and go, that's why I'm non-denominational. Because when you're non-denominational, we don't get caught up in that doctrine and theology stuff. We don't, and I just go, no, actually, you're, you're wrong. If you're non-denominational, that may simply mean that you have the current theology and doctrine of the current pastor. But everybody comes to the scripture with a perspective. It's, it's not that any of us come totally blind and and just hear it. So unfortunately, lines get drawn. And people start asking questions like, which side are you on? And I will just share with you that any time that there are winners and losers in the church, by default, the church loses. Anytime we get into winners and losers in the church, by default, the church loses. My concern, too, is, is that when the church gets into these conversations and debates, we don't often sound like a family gathering together at the family table. 
we sound more like partisan politicians on one side or the other of an aisle. And that's not who we're called to be. So the global church met this past week to discern what, what is our stance. Where are we? It's been a division, a dividing thing in the life of the church for many years. It's something that have had practically all of your clergy nauseous for a while. And I will confess to you, I'm nauseous right now. But the global church voted to maintain the traditional statement of the church, which is that the church does not condone the practice of homosexuality. Now, the church went on. There were some amendments and petitions added that will talk about how to hold clergy accountable or bishops accountable, and some of those are having to be reviewed by the Judicial Council, which is the United Methodist Supreme Court, you might say, and they'll rule on any changes. But what I found interesting when I read all the, the media and some of the things that even some of the clergy and others have shared is that that some ugly, ugly lines were drawn and statements made. And what I find interesting, there's another part of that paragraph that was maintained that has not been picked up by most of the media. It's the part that goes like this. All people, all people are of sacred worth and are created in the image of God. And that we are called to be in ministry for and with all people. And that we are to love one another and not to condemn one another. Somehow that doesn't make it into the papers or the media. I just wanted you to know there's more to the paragraph. When I left Williamson Chapel 11 years ago to come here, I received a card. It's one of my favorite cards that we received, and I hope we still have it. It may be when I leave here next week after this sermon that you send me one that I like better. <laughs> but it was from a gay couple in my church. I had a couple of folks in that congregation that were homosexual, and you need to know you do here as well. Most all of us have someone and, and they sent me this wonderful card. I, I knew these guys. I had conversation with these guys. They would do anything for anybody. And they gave me a card and it went like this. They said, even though we never agreed on this one theological point, us as much as anyone else in this congregation and I told Nancy I said maybe maybe in 30 years of ministry at that time it wasn't 30 it was 20 maybe in 20 at that point maybe maybe I did one thing right to try to maintain my integrity with this is what I believe and I understand in the scripture 
and at the same time be able to love you with all my heart. The church has got to work on that. We're not real good at this part. And unfortunately, when I was listening to the debates and listening to some of the things that have been said and some of the things that have been said since, you got to see the backside of the church. And there is a backside of the church. Because even though the church is a divine institution, it is made up of imperfect people just like me. And you get a group of imperfect people together, there are times it's not pretty. There are a lot of times that it's beautiful. But there are times that it may not be pretty. I think the church needs to wrestle with John chapter 8 a little while. I've shared this with those of you who are taking the Gospel of John Bible study. It's one of my favorite stories. It's the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. I'm always amazed when I read the beginning of that story how a woman gets caught in the act of adultery and the, and the man doesn't. That may show you some of the bias on the people who brought her before Jesus. But this group of people came before Jesus and they had this woman, they drug and presented her there in front of everybody who wanted to hear Jesus and, and they were holding stones in their hands and they wanted to stone her to death. And John tells us that Jesus just kind of rode in the sand but the people kept pushing. So, Jesus, what do you think? Come on. Tell us what you think. Can we? Can we stone her? I have a stone in my office. It's about this big. It used to sit on my desk. Because as you know, my first five years here were not the easiest five years of ministry. And so I kept it on my desk as a reminder that when any of us were ready to be able to throw it, it would be in reach. It sits on my shelf now, but in 11 years, no one's picked it up. Because Jesus looks up at the crowd and he goes, okay, let whoever among you is without sin throw the first stone. And then he looked back down and started writing again. We're not told exactly what he wrote. I have a theory. You know, some people think he started writing the Ten Commandments. I, I, don't, I don't think that's what it was. I think he looked up and made eye contact with one of the people holding a stone and then wrote down their sin. And I think he looked up at someone else and then wrote down their sin. Because we're told that one by one, they dropped their stones and walked away. I imagine I would too if he looked up and made eye contact with me and then wrote down my sins. It would probably be like... And they walked away. And then Jesus looked at the woman and he said, so where are the people that are here to condemn you? And, and she said, they're gone. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now, here's where I think the church gets that scripture wrong. You hear people going, you see what Jesus said? He said, neither do I condemn you. We're not to condemn. That's, you know, 
And then you get another group of people go, did you hear what Jesus said? He said, go and sin no more. Both are true. The problem is the church hasn't figured out that Jesus said both of those things at the exact same time. And we have not figured out how to have the sacred tension of how we can have love and accountability all at one time. We as the church have not figured that out. I, I think the church could wrestle for a while with John chapter 8. Other denominations have struggled with this issue and they fractured. My prayer is, is that we can continue to be the body of Christ. So I want to invite you to something. I, I want to invite you first to breathe. And when we say to breathe in the church, that means to allow the Holy Spirit to do some work in our lives before we react. Breathe. I believe God is doing some great things in this church. And I'm excited about what God has ahead for this church. And I want to see what God is, is getting ready to do in this church. And I really want to do it with you. With you. The thoughts that, that people leave breaks the heart of a shepherd or at least one that loves the sheep. So I want to invite you to conversation. We need to talk. Many of you have already called me. We've talked. Some of us have had coffee together, meals together. Some of us have them planned for next week. I try to tell people, my wife will concur, I do. Breakfast, coffee, lunch, coffee, and sometimes dinner. We just did our taxes, and she talked to me about our expenses of how I do coffee, lunch, breakfast, coffee. <laughs> I will meet you as late or as early as you need to meet. But we need to talk if you need to talk. And I invite us to pray. God knows I've prayed. I think I prayed to the point that God goes, not you again. <laughs> Those of us who wear these, we have different questions we have to answer. And I will stand before God someday and answer these questions. One of them is, have I been faithful? Am I preaching? Am I teaching? One of them will be, have I been more concerned about being appealing to you or making an appeal to you on behalf of Jesus Christ? It's why I pray before every sermon as I stand before these, your people, I pray that this would be your message and not my own.
My very first sermon when I was 16, Nancy heard it. We were dating. That prayer just kind of came out of my mouth. wasn't planned. And I've prayed it every sermon since. One of the reasons is I've heard my stuff. You don't want that. But the other is, I hope to be a vessel for God. If you get to wear these, you get the obligation that goes with it. And part of the challenge of the church is to humble ourselves to pray the prayer Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. To put our agendas aside sometime, for the agenda of God is not the easiest thing to do. I'm not sure sometimes whose agenda the church is promoting. And that is one who loves the church. Bishop Jones, who, who was the one who ordained me, used to have a saying. I think he stole it, but I haven't figured out from where yet. Most of us preachers don't have original material. We just use somebody else's. But he would say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, since that is the main thing. What is the main thing? I think the main thing is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. I think the main thing is to understand that God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whosoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. I think that's the main thing. There are very few things that I can tell you is the absolute will of God, but I think one of them that I can tell you is that God is not willing that any should perish, but all would come to know him and love him. That's in the book. And I am reminded. I am reminded of a conversation Jesus had with the disciples when he asked them, who do the people say that I am? They gave him some answers, but then Jesus said, you know what I really need to know? You know what I really need to know? What I need to know is, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up and said, I, I know exactly who you are. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes. And then he said, I can build my church on that. And if I build my church on that, even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. My prayer is that we will be more like family gathered at the family table than we will partisan politicians on different sides of an aisle. Amen.